great hole forces me down my soapbox, my pulpit the theater seal the silver star spangled and the coins in my pocket go jingle Welcome to Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life for RIT House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and today we're going to dive into a topic that for some curious reason most philosophers have entirely avoided and that topic is love. So the connection between love and philosophy is curiously tenuous and very undernourished. In ethics there's often talk of sentiments and pleasures and affects or emotions and empathy but very rarely love it's there in canonical philosophy so very famous texts such as plato's symposium but in general it's been outsourced to the poets and psychologists and the writers and the theologians and maybe there are good reasons for this and maybe they're not in either case, this kind of question doesn't really concern us. Because what I want to do today is connect the notion of love to all of the other things that we've been discussing in the last few episodes about causation, cause and effect. That is, love is going to form the basis of a very concrete or particular example of the relationship between causation and the virtues, which is where we were left at the end of the last episode. So in other words, I'm really using love as an example, as one particular kind of virtue that we all probably are signed up to in one way or another. We all want this in our lives. And, you know, you could replace love with a different virtue, such as courage or generosity or something like that, and the same kind of structure would apply. So love here is an example which helps us understand that structure. So let me briefly refresh your memory about this. I made the claim in episode 9 that we've all become really proficient at mastering the causation connected with the body. We've learned how to sow causes in the present that we know and understand will lead to good conditions in the future. So that's why people are out jogging and riding bicycles and going to the gym and eating quinoa and cutting down on butter and all of the rest. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people these days really look a million dollars. They're really fit and strong and low fat and low cholesterol and all of that kind of stuff. So we, we kind of know and understand that doing X and Y will lead to Z and A. So we do it. Even painful things like practicing Pilates and reducing cheese intake uh, or you know not all of us do it but a lot of us do it but I also made the claim that when it comes to mental and emotional phenomena we're rather less certain about the relationship between present causes and future good conditions in fact I really believe we're in kind of a big mess on this issue and that this mess is really visible starkly visible not just on the individual level 
with explosion of people suffering mental illnesses of various kinds, but also on the social or civic level, where our social and political fabric is seemingly coming apart at the seams. So I'm choosing to focus on love here to demonstrate that we often fail to apply a causal logic in this domain, a domain of emotions, of cognitions, of relations, of ethics, of sociality. And so we end up living in some kind of combination of fallacy and fantasy, which produces a condition of tremendous struggle and suffering. So let me start this task with a spot the difference game. So please spot the difference in these three choices. A. I want to grow potatoes, so I plant seed potatoes in the spring in good manure, in a nice sunny spot. B. I want to lead a successful life, so I study engineering, and I apply myself with diligence and effort. C. I want to have love in my life, so I get extremely drunk, and try to pick up at the bar, and or swipe left or right on Tinder. So what's the difference? Pretty obvious, right? A and B are actions which one undertakes in tune with the unfolding of causation, whereas C, with a bit of a caveat, is not. C is a roll of the dice, a dance with fate, uh, an act of desire which fails to countenance what love is and how it's actually accomplished in and through reality. So, you know, we know that you can't get an engineering job without first studying engineering, understanding the physics of how bridges stay up, and then mastering all the causes which lead to the condition of gainful employment as an engineer. We also know that expecting potatoes in late summer after planting dried apricots in spring is really foolish and idiotic. But we often fail to see the relationship between virtuous mental states and dispositions, in this case the condition of love, and the causes required to produce them. So, you know, I'm not denying that it's possible to find love on Tinder or on a bender. In fact, I know people who have married from a drunken bar meetup. What I'm really trying to get at is that love is not something you get or find, or choose. It's something you must develop and cultivate through action, through time, by understanding and working with the reality of causation. So that's really the essential theme of, of this episode. At the moment, I'm kind of speaking about romantic or erotic love, but we're going to expand this into other forms as we progress through the episode. And these days, romantic love is often theoretically conceived through a kind of biological model. You know, the fundamental animalistic Darwinian drive to reproduce, to spread the genes, all that stuff, right? And this actually has its roots in the great Roman Epicurean poet-philosopher Lucretius, who lived a very long time before Darwin. But, you know, I think most of us take our cues these days from contemporary psychology, 
And this leans very heavily on this kind of biological evolutionary model. And I don't wish to deny this. I think it actually does offer something of a plausible theory for this drive to find a mate and for all of the emotional and hormonal and chemical reactions that take place in the early stages of courtship. But there's, I think, quite a bit missing too from this model, which I'll get into. But let me grant for the moment the biological model of romantic love. It's kind of truth. So the missing bit is really this, and anyone over the age of 19 kind of knows this to the roots of their being, that crazy, infatuated, skunk-high-on-romance kind of love always fades into something else. Very often into thin air, often into disillusionment, often into real visceral antagonism. But sometimes into something richer and more profound and more intimate, more beautiful, more true, more enabling. Into this thing that a lot of us kind of deny because it seems too lofty and idealistic and too Hollywood, but nonetheless secretly still aspire to. This thing that is called true love. And I don't think the biological model really offers much about this. Psychology probably does, but only when it begins to venture away from that really grassroots biological theory of everything and turns into the realm of existential human experience. That is, investigating and asking what it is to be a human in a relationship. So there are insights to be had on that level of psychology. And once we move in this direction, we can see with really impeccable clarity that actions matter. Habits matter. The ways we speak and listen matter. The ways we feel and have emotions matter. The kinds of thoughts we have matter. The degree of empathy and compassion that we have or develop matters. The values we share matter. The ideas we have matter. The way we develop intimacy matters. So all these could be considered different elements which together make up the virtue of love. They are things that could be developed to greater or lesser degrees. And a successful love requires their development. It is a condition which arises out of those elements, all of which are basically causal. That is, they are all actions which have certain kinds of effects. So, just like the profit of a business, which I talked about in the last episode, love is never just there on the balance sheet. It's never just a given. It has to be crafted day in and day out. You have to work on it. It's like an art. And there are techniques associated with mastering that art are underpinned by a logic of causation. But this kind of causal view is very often absent. It's missing from the lived experience of a romantic or sexual relationship. And in its place is something far more idealist and maybe even illusory 
which is an expectation or an assumption that love simply is as a fact of the matter as something which the other person has and you have for them love here as a kind of ontology it's just there independently of what is said of what is done of what is enacted through time through causation so when marriages or long-term relationships become hellish this is precisely why the causal notion of love is replaced with a deep illusion that love is some kind of fixed thing that ought to just be there. And you end up with this situation where both parties kind of look at each other with this deep resentment that borders on hatred because they look for this thereness of love and they see its absence. They see that it's not really there. It should be there, but it's not. So the point here should be really, really clear. And it's this. It's going to sound a bit Aristotelian. Love is closer to an activity than a thing. It's something continually enacted. And being connected to action in this way, we must consider that it is often something we forget to enact. We get caught up in other things, in the busyness of life in the pains and confusions of life, in our work, in our stresses, in our desires and pleasures and expectations and ambitions. And if we are not enacting love day in, day out, then we should not be surprised to encounter its absence instead of its presence. I mean, after all, who goes down to the veggie patch expecting potatoes if they've not sowed seeds a few months earlier. Only fools. And many of us are really great fools in this terrain. I certainly have been uh, through a lot of my life. So that's a brief account of romantic love and the ways in which it is a virtue to be developed and cultivated through our actions rather than some mystical thing that's just innately there all of the time. And this might sound like a bit of a letdown. Uh, you know, maybe in some respects it is. If you think about all the Hollywood depictions of romantic love, they always, they always depict the tremendous drama of two people kind of finding a path together. And they always end when they've accomplished this. That is, when those people have overcome all the obstacles and they accept within themselves that actually, yeah, they both do really love each other. Now that's the end of the film, but this end is really just the beginning, right, in real life? Of endless meals cooked and cleaned, and endless bills paid, and endless hours worked, and endless unceasing habits of just being a couple. Which is all less emotionally charged, but ultimately much, much closer to what true love actually looks like in reality, outside of the, the screen. Now... Alongside this letdown, this popping of the Hollywood romantic bubble, there is something very profound and beautiful too, if you examine it a little more closely. And this beautiful and profound thing is that the very same causal logic holds for all the other forms of love too. For familial love, the love for parents or children 
or siblings or extended family, platonic or love for friends, neighborly or social or civic forms of love, even more religious forms of love such as the Christian agape or the Buddhist maitri or the Jewish hesed. Now, the profundity and beauty is also very, very simple and very accessible. And it is a fact that one always has a possibility of generating love in one's mind stream in any given moment of time. And really importantly, independently of what anyone else is doing or not doing in relation to you. So there's no condition which precludes this. Uh, not even grief or rejection or depression or physical illness or even proximity to death. Once we steer our thinking away from the notion that love is something innately there or that it's something that we get from other people or that something we choose by swiping left on Tinder or finding someone attractive at the bar, once we cut through all of that illusion and realise that love is actually a state of mind, which we can always and continually cultivate and develop, independently of whatever may be taking place in our lives, then it follows that we can all accomplish this most central task without any further delay. Because there's really nothing in the way. Or the only thing in the way is the false view that somehow or other it's not possible or desirable to do this, to develop love in our mind stream. And I'm going to put it to you that... It is certainly possible, and it is also certainly desirable. So let me make the case for these two arguments to close out the episode. Let's start with the first one, that it's possible. How is it possible to always cultivate love, no matter what your life circumstances might be? Well... It's possible so long as you have other living creatures in proximity to you. Because love is simply one possible way of relating to those creatures. And they need not even be humans. They could be pets or even wild animals. But you know, all of us do have humans in proximity to us. We live in a vast social world. Every day we encounter all kinds of humans. In our cars, at our work at the cafe, at the park, on television, on our streets, everywhere we go, there's people around. And the point is this, every time you encounter another human being, there is the possibility to cultivate an attitude of love toward them. The mere fact of them being present makes this possible. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. Far from it but simply that it is possible. You know, and there are other possibilities that exist in the same time. Indifference is a very, very standard response when you encounter another human being. So think about sitting in traffic. How often do you consider that all these humans around you, trapped in their cars, are also just like you, bored, wanting to get moving, wanting to arrive at their destination, full of a whole bunch of thoughts and concerns. 
Now, you could sit for five minutes in traffic in complete indifference to all those humans around you, almost oblivious to their existence. And let's be honest, that's kind of the standard mode of approaching that kind of situation in any big city in the world. These are all just strangers, and what we do is do our best to avoid any real consideration that they are actually people just like us. Now, if you're an impatient type, the kind of attitude you might have might be a little stronger than mere indifference. It might be a kind of aversion for all of these assholes getting in your way. And I think we've all been there to some degree. I'm personally a mild-mannered chap until you put me behind the wheel. And I think uh, a lot of other people are in the same boat there. <clears throat> so we could generate indifference. We could generate hostility and an aversion and anger. But it is possible to spend those five minutes otherwise completely wasted, cultivating love for all those beings, all those strangers around you that you see in front, to the left, across, etc. How precisely might we do this? Well, having an awareness is probably the starting point. In the sense that what we usually do is to try and block out the fact of all these strangers around us. We kind of pretend that they don't exist. That's our usual mode. So we reach for our phone or the radio or we stare into space and start thinking about things. We do anything to avoid the bare humanity surrounding us. And it's actually quite a big task to begin to underdo this. Again, though, the point here is simply that it is possible. And once you have that awareness, well, yes, there's a whole bunch of humans sitting around me. There are particular techniques. One such one is called Tonglen, which is a Tibetan Buddhist practice for developing love. And it translates simply to giving and taking. So it's just an example here. Once you undo your usual blocking out thing, and you recognize that there's a whole bunch of human beings sitting there, bored, a little bit, or maybe a lot unhappy, you go, well, I'm going to develop love for all of these beings, so I'm going to breathe in all of their suffering in the form of black smoke. Take it on board. Take on their suffering. And breathe out all of your good values, all of your kindness, all of your love with your out-breath. So in-breath, you take the suffering. Out-breath, you give out whatever you have. Which sounds kind of really hard. And it is really hard. I'm not arguing that it's easy. Only that it is possible. And it is possible. Everyone can do this in that kind of situation. Now, the key to this example is that it's making use of that causal logic that I've been talking about now for many episodes in the series. It might be that the first few times you actually attempt this, not very much happens because it's only a very small number of actions against a lifetime of indifference. And your habit of indifference in traffic jams is going to be much more strong. But if you do it more consistently over a longer period of time, let's say you spend four months where whenever you're in traffic, you try this technique, you will definitely develop a kind of natural love, affinity, openness, compassion for strangers. 
which really does deconstruct that kind of habitual pattern of indifference. And then you might not be there all the time, but you have this as an option, as kind of a possibility. You could turn the radio on, you could check your phone, you could practice Tonglen. And once you have it as a possibility, no matter what life circumstances you face, no matter what traffic you run into, no matter what problems you have, it's there as a possibility. Okay, so that's just one example. And I think actually it's far more profound than I've made it out to be because there are a whole bunch of effects which follow from doing these sorts of actions which are kind of hard to see unless you actually do it. And they're very beautiful effects, really kind of mind-blowing ones. But we need not go into this now. The point is simply that it is possible to always develop love in our mind stream. We don't need any particular conditions. We just need the right kind of view, which is this causal view, and then the willingness to try and do it. Second argument though, but is it desirable? I've established that it's possible. Is it desirable? Well, I'm not sure how much of an argument I really need to offer here. Is it desirable to have beauty instead of ugliness? Is it desirable to have happiness instead of sadness? Is it desirable to have wealth instead of poverty? Is it desirable to have intelligence instead of stupidity? Is it desirable to have love instead of indifference and anger? Well, yes, 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 of course it is. The person that has love in their hearts is happy and content in themselves and also beneficial and beautiful to the people around them. So, you know, there's really no doubt about that. It's kind of really obvious, right? It's a win-win. It's a win for you and it's a win for the people around you. But there's kind of a deeper, more powerful argument here, which is intimately connected to all that I've been saying about causation over the last three or four episodes. And it's this, that if you perform a proper analysis of all the causes and conditions which constitute you to be who you are, you will find many determining or constraining causes. Now, some of these may be genetic, some of them may be physical, but many of them are directly tied to the kinds of relationships that you are in or surrounded by. This is the really profound point. A rock or a Honda Civic doesn't have to worry about its causes and conditions. But humans do. We're all embedded in a myriad of causes and conditions, which many of which are principally social bonds. That is, we are who we are in lieu of our families, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours, our clients, our customers, our local shops, our cities, etc., etc. How we are perceived when we hop on trains, how we perceive when we step into the office, how we act when we're stuck in traffic or on a long-haul flight, what we say when our kid throws his wheat bix on the ground. We are constantly in webs of social relations. Even when we're alone, these social relations 
come with us and constitute us. So if you're walking in the woods, thinking about a Rate House podcast, you're still carrying all of those sets of relations with you in your steps. They are still making you who you are. Now here is the powerful argument, and it's kind of twofold. First point, if you don't really see this clearly, many, if not most of those social links will be tainted with your emotions and attitudes of indifference and aversion. Blocking people out, being averse, having hostility to some of those people in your causal chain. Maybe it's some work colleagues, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your annoying neighbour who plays loud music too late, or even your kid when they throw wheat bix on the floor. So the point here is that causal constraint being determined by causation is in part having an indifferent or hostile or fearful attitude to all the other beings in proximity to you. Okay, so it's at the root of constraint. What is the anxiety epidemic but this? It is the worrying about how one is perceived and imputed and judged by others. So if you can turn that around, you turn around this thing which is shaping you so negatively so much, causing so many emotional and mental problems within your mind stream. So in a way, it's not so much about the relationships in and of themselves, but much more about your attitudes toward them, how you treat them and interpret them, which really means how you treat and interpret other beings. Uh, which is in part a kind of Stoic point, but also maybe Aristotelian and Buddhistic too. In the sense that what you actually do here really matters. Your actions do have effects. If you build up hostility towards a work colleague, you know, going into the office every day and working with them is going to be heavy and unpleasant and difficult. Or to go back to the earlier example, if you have indifference in a traffic jam, it might seem innocuous, but your mind will be dull and closed off by the time you arrive at your destination. But if you sit there and you practice Tonglen or some other technique and are able to generate and cultivate more kindness and compassion, there's no doubt that you will be lighter and richer and more alive and more subtle and more open and much, much more pleasant within yourself and to others. So the second bit of the argument is that we really do have agency here. We do have the liberty to change these attitudes, to turn them in a more loving and kind and compassionate direction. So, of course, this is desirable. So, it is both possible and desirable to develop love and compassion in your mind stream. And I think this is just as true for all the other virtues. And the key point here is the word develop. It's so going back to all the virtues traditions of the Axial Age, as I mentioned last episode, ancient Greece, ancient India, ancient China, all share this notion of developing and cultivating our minds and emotions through time, 
through causation, through what we do. And what those actions end up generating in terms of our dispositions, our character traits, and over a longer period of time, the very conditions that we inhabit. So, you know, perhaps now we have a good sketch of what is at stake when we go from metaphysics to ethics. And the thing which links the two together is really causation. Causation is a link. And hopefully now you have a good sense of what that actually implies on a very practical level. I think we have a good template for this now. Maybe we do not really have much of a sense of how. There's still questions to be asked on the level of technique, method, practice, how precisely one might develop and cultivate virtues such as love and other qualities such as calm, or honesty, courage, patience, all those other virtues. So I'll begin this task in the next episode. We'll shift more to technique. In the meantime, thank you for listening and uh, stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au. Streets crack and a great hole forces me down My soapbox, my pulpit The theatre seal, the silver star spangled And the coins in my pocket go jingle